Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I am film critic Debbie Elias, and you can find me every week around the globe, print and online, but every Monday you can find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com and AdviceRadio.com at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, We're a little late starting today. We're running into sound issues here, trying to get those ironed out so we have no glitches during the show. So... Bear with us. Brian isn't here today, people. We have Steve here today. So I don't know if that's causing the problem. But you're you're forearmed, you're forewarned now. An exciting show today. Um a show that I'm I'm very thrilled. I can't wait to talk to the filmmakers who we have calling in uh with us today. We're gonna have a documentarian, Ido Har, uh, who is the director, director, cinematographer, editor of presenting Princess Shaw, which is already, it hasn't even released yet and is breaking out to critical acclaim. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. It's across, it is a global tour, essentially melding media, music, song, and different cultures. Uh, it, it's astounding. And then, and I hate to have favorites, but my 1130 interview today um, I think it's easy to say that he is he's going he's a favorite. Um Soren Peter Sorensen, director, cinematographer, and editor again. A very poignant documentary called My Father's Vietnam. And uh, his father served in Nam. And as so many of us know, over the decades, there has been it fra- Vietnam War fractured our country. It fractured many of the returning soldiers. It fractured the public's opinion of the soldiers returning. So this is a very interesting look, a very personal and poignant look that Soren has in speaking with his father and focusing on three soldiers that sir that his father knew, uh, either be it either at Fort Dix, uh, which I'm oh oh I just had a revelation. Steve did something on the board. I can now hear. Um, pardon that, but this is the joy of live. What can I tell you? Um, but as I was saying, uh, it's be it at Fort Dix, be it actually in Nam, be it on the airplane or um, in OFC school, P- uh, Soren's father, Peter, knew these gentlemen. And years later, he had never talked about the war, but there was one of his friends that he thought about. And we're going to go on this great journey uh, with Soren as he talks to his dad and to surviving members of those that did not come back from Vietnam. And considering next Monday is Memorial Day, uh, I can't think of of a better way to kick off this week, especially after this weekend. Uh, Saturday uh, was the National Day of Saluting Military. So uh, I'm looking forward to having Soren Peter Sorensen with us, as, as well as having Ido Har with us at 11.15 or so. But... A lot of big things are happening next week. June 1st, LA Film Festival starts. June 2nd, Dances with Film starts. And also June 1st, I'm going to give a big shout out to the South Bay Film Festival uh, that is being sponsored in part by The Beach Reporter. And I'm putting this out there for my journalist and friend, Michael Hickson, uh, down the Manhattan Beach area in the South Bay region. It's the first film festival they're having. So, uh, and that starts on the 1st also. So we got a lot of local film festivals coming up. Uh, so a lot of things that everybody out there can see in the Los Angeles area over the next 10 days or so, uh, right after the Memorial Day holiday. But before we get to Memorial Day, opening this Friday in theaters is the much-anticipated sequel to Alice in Wonderland, Alice Through the Looking Glass. And I have to tell you, it is exquisite. It is a timeless classic. It's... It just, it's magical. Um, You fall in love with the beauty of it. Colleen Atwood uh, is back doing the costuming on it. She won an Oscar for the first Alice in Wonderland. I fully expect Oscar nomination, if not a win, for her work in Through the Looking Glass. Uh, James Bobin, who you all know from uh, The Muppets Most Wanted, James is now helming for his first CGI and animated film, through the looking glass and yesterday at a small press conference here in LA because there have been so many of them around the world already um, 
I had a chance to talk with James Bobin and returning producer Suzanne Todd about Alice Through the Looking Glass and melding the uh, Carolian world, that of Lewis Carroll, with the Bertonian world, that of Tim Burton, whose visuals brought the film to life a few years ago, uh, with his own sensibilities, but while expanding, because as you see, when you see the film, this is not lifted straight out of either at the Alice in Wonderland book or the Through the Looking Glass book. It grafts onto the idea of time, and time is a character, which is introduced in the original Alice in Wonderland by the Mad Hatter with one sentence. And it's that one sentence that screenwriter Linda Wolverton and James Bobin jumped on to create this new fantastical masterpiece. So, what do James and Suzanne have to say about melding these worlds and James putting his own stamp on Alice Through the Looking Glass? Guys, I want to first say congratulations. Another Suzanne exquisite, a timeless classic. Thank you. Um, But what I want to ask of James and Suzanne is blending the Carolian world, Mm -hmm. the Bretonian world, Mm -hmm. now the Bobinian world. (laughs) That's a good word. (laughs) And and your first experience with CGI and animation on top of all of this, how do you pay homage to what comes before, retain that essence, but put your spin on it? That's uh, it's a it's a question of you know it's a question of tone, and tone is a result of a million decisions you make over you know over, over the period of the production of the movie, and so it's something I was incredibly aware of. Obviously, Tim's first movie looks so beautiful, and it felt to me like a good sort of parameters of which I could work. But this film is obviously set in a different time period, different geographical location, so I, I was allowed as a director to bring something of myself to it as well. But of course, we, we really are standing on the shoulders of Lewis Carroll, who again, it's that thing whereby it's through an interpretation, but I really, I, I'm pretty familiar with his work, and I really felt that whilst we couldn't tell the story of the book, because it was in its own way somewhat... Um, you know, it's, it, the story hasn't much cause and effect, and the, the scenes blend into one another. It's, it's quite un, unusual. But I wanted to pay tribute to him in the sense that it'd be a story that he would appreciate. Mm-hmm. And I think even though time travel was kind of as a literary conceit is later than him, I think as a mathematician he would appreciate the idea of time travel. You know, because it's equations and physics basically. So I wanted to try and keep that part of it too. But at the same time, having time be a person was, of course, Lewis Carroll's idea. Lewis Carroll wrote in the book when Hatter meets Alice for the first time. You know, I've been stuck here since last. March when time and I quarreled. So it was kind of those bits. It's basically trying to incorporate elements of Lewis Carroll whilst maintaining the Tim world, but then bringing something of what you think those things are. And it's, as I said, it's a question of a day-by-day living your life thing. But um, the end result, I'm really pleased with it, and these guys did an amazing job. So. And when James says day-by-day, day, he literally means day-by-day, minute-by-minute for years. <laughs> years. For years and years. When you talk about you know what you're talking about in terms of the achievement of the tone and the look, it is thousands and thousands, if not millions, of decisions. And, you know, we were very lucky in many cases to have Danny Elfman come back to do the score, and Colleen Atwood, who won an Oscar for the first Alice, to come back and do the costumes. We had a new production designer, Dan Henna, another Academy Award winner, who we were very lucky that, you know, we chose someone who really fit in and helped James again, honor what Tim had done, but push it into something fresh and new that was right. James's own thing. You know, Ken Ralston doing the visual effects, obviously, you know, them yeah. coming back, they had been Oscar nominated for the first movie, and Ken has won many other Oscars, and yeah. yes, it was many, many, I'd say millions of decisions. And, and by, as you say, a huge number of people, the credits are some like 10 minutes long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because they all helped, and so this is a result for everybody. Yeah. Well, and when Suzanne Todd mentions you know, Ken Ralston, you know, won an Oscar. Colleen Atwood won an Oscar. Disney is on a roll this year with the films that are coming out. It's going to be interesting to see how Oscars do play out because of the VFX that we're seeing this year. Uh, For example, in Jungle Book, you know, new strides were achieved uh, with photorealism in that film. So whether we end up seeing some science and tech awards coming the way of Disney and the companies that have helped with this proprietary development of a new software and new technology, or be it, you know, for the, on the art side, uh, the televised end of the Academy Awards, it's going to be a tight year. And I think that Disney is really going to have, they've stepped up their game all year long. We've got a lot more to look forward to, including Finding Dory, Next month, it's every month. We've got at least one or two gems that are popping up, 
And as many of you know, today, Beauty and the Beast, the very first teaser trailer just broke for the live-action Beauty and the Beast that premieres next year, March 17th, 2017. So there's a lot to look forward to. So, you know, of course, go buy Disney stock because there are great things happening. Um, but I think before we have uh, Ito calling in, I think we'll take a commercial break. Steve's nodding his head up and down, so that's good. We'll do a commercial break, and when we come back, we should have Ito Har with us. And we'll be back. Hi, this is Terry Crews. Actor, former football player, game show host, father of five, and all-around big dude. I'm also an expert on drama. I know all kinds of drama. There's the good kind that comes with having a house full of kids. There's the bad kind, like season-ending injuries. There's the necessary kind, like having an agent in Hollywood. And there's silly drama, like the drama around my percolating pectorals. And then there's the drama you can skip. Skip the drama that comes with not having your high school diploma or equivalency. Find free adult education classes near you and finish your high school diploma. Visit finishyourdiploma.org. Or text DIPLOMA to 97779. Message and data rates may apply. Reply STOP to opt out. That's DIPLOMA to 97779. And leave the drama to actors like me. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ed Council. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we are back. So, before, before we get to... Presenting Princess Shaw and Ido Har. Um, there's a great documentary uh, that is currently out right now. I had the pleasure of moderating the Q&A uh, this weekend at Sundance Cinemas. Uh, it is called Almost Holy. And it is ba- the subject of the film. He's known as Pastor Crocodile, Pastor Genaday, uh in the Ukraine. It's a fascinating story. Uh, a one-man, almost vigilante he is a priest, he is a pastor, and he is now, in the past two years, he is now a military chaplain uh, with the advent of war at the borders of the Ukraine, with Putin's troops moving in. Um, it, it's an amazing story that goes back to when he started shaking things up in the Ukraine, determined to get kids off the streets. Uh, there's a big drug problem, there's a homeless problem, uh, an orphan problem, and he single-handedly got, it feels that he got a calling uh, to take care of this himself, that this is his mission. And over the course of years in, in pulling kids off the streets, he has adopted 32 kids. He has all of whom he rescued from the streets. Some of them we actually hear from in a subsequent piece that uh, Russia Today actually did. It's the first time they've ever done anything focusing on a Christian pastor. And it takes a, it, it actually interviews some of his adopted children, talking about where they were when he saved them and where they are now. One is now attending a music conservatory. Others are, they're cleaned up, they're happy, they're healthy. Um, drug trafficking, and it's not the kind of drug trafficking you think about here in the United States with cocaine and heroin. The drug of choice in the Ukraine, as we learn in the documentary almost wholly, is tramadol. It's an opiate. Here in the United States, it's regulated. It used to be regulated in the Ukraine until the government decided to deregulate it. So it became readily available for people to, you know, start selling to kids on the streets. Um, Very sad, very sad. But Genaday is doing amazing work over there. Uh, he has a foundation, the Pilgrim Republic. Um, they're now from one rehab facility started years ago. They're now 40 rehabbing adults as well. And the documentary goes on this journey. It stops two years ago. Director Steve Hoover, executive producer Terrence Malick, just absolutely outstanding, moving. And it was interesting because he was curious. And so we were asking the audience, why 
would you want to see a documentary about the Ukraine, about what he calls his pain? And everyone had pretty much the same answer because they want to expand their world. They want to know what's going on in the world. Uh, it is playing in New York and L.A. right now, expanding uh, in coming weeks. It will be available on iTunes uh, and all your VOD platforms. So please be on the lookout uh, for Almost Holy. And also, if you can find it, uh, Father of Orphans, which is the little Russia Today put together mini series, so to speak, because there's a 25 minute segment of Genaday with his children and a little backstory, but most of it is about something that they were cut short doing when the war started, which is they all bicycle and they bicycle 10,000 miles through Siberia, uh, raising money and not only for the Pilgrim Republic Foundation, but raising adoption awareness because it is his dream to have every child in the Ukraine and Russia adopted and have a home, a loving family. So that is going to be, that's what he hopes to resume doing once the war ends, once the troops are gone. Um, Very powerful stuff. So if you get a chance, please take a look at Almost Holy. Look for Fathers of Orphans. Uh, You will not be disappointed. Uh, And it is expanding. So just check your directories. It's still playing in L.A. at the Sundance Cinemas. Uh, I'm not sure where it's playing in New York, but uh, the film's big premiere was in New York uh, last week. So that is one of my big documentary recommendations for this week. Another documentary that we're going to start talking about is Australia's Lost Gold. Well, when this one hit me, uh, came across my desk, uh, didn't take much. The word gold was in it. And anybody that looks at the videos, anybody that knows me, yes, I like my gold. Uh, and, you know, it's been rumored for 80 years now that a man named Harry, Soren, Harry, uh, <clears throat> Harry Lassiter found a seven-mile vein of gold in the center of Australia, in central Australia. He claimed to have found it in the late 1890s when he he was in a reformatory and he allegedly ran away, found this, and then years later in 1930 or so, he went back on an expedition to find his vein of gold to make himself rich, to make his wife rich, and to leave something for his, a legacy for his son, Bob. Well, that has been a myth through Australia for over 80 years. And for many years, the search for Australia's uh, lost gold was part of, it was even uh, showcased on the show High Adventure with Lowell Thomas. For those of you old enough to remember or are keyed into vintage television broadcasts, uh, Lowell Thomas had this adventure series where he would go around the world with extraordinary tales and extraordinary places. And he did a whole segment on Harry Lassiter and looking for this lost gold. Uh, What is very creepy that we actually get to see in this new documentary from Luke Walker is they actually found Harry Lassiter's bones and they dug them up on camera. Yes, there was somebody before Geraldo Rivera. Steve's looking at me like I'm insane. (laughs) I mean, I'm watching, and when I was watching the documentary, that was very, very striking to say the least that they are actually digging up this man's bones. And of course, then they did relocate them uh, somewhere else. But the mythology that has followed the story of Harry Lassiter and his gold for 80 years, for many who are, you know, who have passed on, they don't think about it anymore. It's, it's just, you know, urban legend. But then you've got somebody like Luke Walker. Luke Walker is, to say the least, obsessed obsessed with the story of Harry Lassiter and his gold. And about eight years ago, he started researching and digging into the the history and the story. Now, Luke will be in town in Los Angeles this week. He flies in this week. The film will have its Los Angeles premiere Friday night at the Arena Cinema in Hollywood on Las Palmas. I will be there moderating the Q&A post-screening Q&A Friday and Saturday. So if you're around, you know, come on, come on down. 
you'll see a great film and one of the most engaging filmmakers that you could ever hope to talk to. But uh, Luke and I had a chance to talk the other night. Yes, it was 11 o'clock at night here in Los Angeles uh, when I talked to him. And it was well worth every second of staying up late and learning about his journey. Because his construct of this film is very much, we are there with him. Uh, The old TV series, you know, You Are There, Walter Cronkite. This is very much that because as Luke is learning, is trying to either debunk or prove some of Harry's, you know, thoughts and his ideas and his diaries, you know, we see the look on Luke's face. He becomes part of the process, which typically with documentaries I'm not too fond of where the filmmaker implants themselves within the documentary itself. But in this case, it works exceedingly well because we are, we're getting the same element of surprise as he is. It's kind of like, you feel like you're Indiana Jones, Nancy Drew, the Hardy Boys, and Temperance Brennan all rolled into one. So here's just a little bit of what Luke and I talked about the other night about Australia's lost gold. When you first heard about about Harry Lasseter and the legend and what it was that just grabbed your attention and drew you in so deeply? Well, I should probably, uh, should I give a little bit of background as to, as to what, what, what happened to Lasseter? I, I, I perhaps should maybe explain that um, Lasseter was a guy who, in 1930, claimed to know where there was a seam of gold seven miles long in the centre of Australia, and he persuaded these men to go out looking for it with him. And after a while, they they think this guy doesn't know where he's going. You know, they give him they give him three or four months, and after three or four months, they they, they just feel like he doesn't seem to know where he's going. They they feel that he isn't behaving like a man who's ever been out in the desert before, and the the, the conditions out there are grueling. You know, it, it, it gets up to. 50 degrees centigrade. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's it's incredibly hot. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're dealing with this old old machinery and and, and trying to get through this horrible, in, inhospitable terrain to try and find this gold with this man that, that they don't believe anymore. And so they say, you know what? We think we've given you long enough. We're going home. We don't think uh, you know where you're going. And he says, I promise you, I do. Stick with me. I, I will find it. It's just been a long time since I've been out here. And they said, we've given you long enough. And they leave him out there. And he says, look, I I promise you I will find this gold, and if I don't find the gold, I'm never coming back. And he doesn't. He dies looking for it. And the following year, they find his body. And near the body, they find a diary. And in the diary, he's written that he's found this gold again. But he'd give it all for a loaf of bread, because he's he's, he's dying horribly of, uh, of exposure and starvation. But for 80 years, people have been trying to find where this, where this gold is. Um. So, you know, we're having so much fun today with technical issues. Um, Ido Har will probably be calling at about 1145 or 1150. For whatever reason, they were calling my cell phone and not the studio. Um, so hopefully that will get resolved because we're going to have Soren Sorensen calling back in just a few minutes. He was very prompt and on time at 11 o'clock today, even before his call-in time. Um, but continuing on with Luke, let's hear a little bit more about his discovery in looking for Harry Lasseter in Australia's Lost Gold. I have to say, as I'm watching Australia's Lost Gold, all I kept thinking is that phrase from the Disney movie Santa Claus, believing is seeing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think it is. It does end up being a film about faith, actually. And it but. just... The way you constructed this documentary, the journey that you took so that we could... Our eyes could get opened along with yours. I mean, it's a fabulous structure for the story that you're telling. How did you... Was that your intent from the beginning, or how did that fall into play over the course of the four some four years or so that you were on this adventure? Well, it, 
wasn't originally. Uh, I, I didn't intend to be uh, in the film, um, but I, I realised um, I, I, I've been obsessed with this with this story for for a long time, um, and uh, I found out that, that Bob Lasseter, uh, Lasseter's son, was was going out into the desert to to look for the gold again. And so I. I went with him because I, I, I thought how wonderful it was that, uh, that you know, this, this 85-year-old guy who's been trying to find his, his, his father's gold for his entire lifetime was going out to look for it again and was inviting me along with him. I, I couldn't resist it. So I went out thinking, well, that, that would be enough of a film in itself. But when I came back, I, I realised that uh, it wasn't going to be able to sustain the narrative on its own. And, and I, I found that it was always more interesting when I'd accidentally sort of wandered into frame and was... was Asking questions about uh, about where the gold was and and um, a particular clue perhaps that Lasseter had left behind. It was always more interesting when you saw it through my eyes. You know, when you saw me as a bit of a detective trying to get to the bottom of where this gold was and and what the clues were that we were trying to solve. You know, and so more and more, I, I, I found that that was going to have to that was going to be the structure that that, uh, that pulled us through the film in order to really understand why this uh, why this this story was so fascinating you had to see my fascination and so I, I became more and more involved in the film and um, yeah the, 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 the structure does end up being um, the viewer unraveling the clues with me I suppose for the most part and we'll hear some more from Luke Walker later on in the show but right now I am thrilled to welcome Soren Peter Sorensen to behind the lens hello Soren how are you very good. How are you? I am fine. This is this is a real treat to have you on your documentary. I know. I over the years, I have known so many men who went to Vietnam, came back. Many that went and didn't come back. Um, so to see this journey that you went on with your father is just and the revelations and the sensitivity that you bring to this. It is just an absolute pleasure and a privilege to, to see to see this documentary. Thanks very much for the kind words. I appreciate it. What led you? This is not the because at the top of the show, and I, I was talking about the Vietnam War fractured America on so many fronts, and the returning soldiers were never given a hero's welcome, much as what we have since seen through the various Iraq wars and Afghanistan. Definitely not what. Our men got men and women got returning from Korea or World War One or World War Two, and they were kind of cast aside, never spoke about anything. Um, so to now focus, we're seeing slowly some some documentaries, some films, but for you know like an Oliver Stone, a big blockbuster piece like Born on the Fourth of July, we're starting to see some of these stories now being told. Your father's being one of them. What led you? to this documentary of my father's Vietnam because this is a, you're a composer you're not a documentarian by trade well you know it's they all kind of um these sort these things sort of fire the same parts of the brain uh for me uh, you know my my initial um motivation was probably more selfish than the the uh you know the 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 celebration of an under celebrated class of people um you know i I knew that there was something interesting um that I hadn't spoken to him about, and you know i wanted to, I wanted to know more about it because I was interested in it um uh, that, that doesn't mean that i'm I'm not uh you know honored or um incredibly humbled by the fact that uh what comes out of this film and and the the interviews that that I conducted for it. Um, is this kind of awareness that we didn't um, treat collectively as a, as a culture, as a community, uh, Vietnam veterans uh, the way they ought to have been treated um, as they came home um, in the, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so, so again, my, my initial motivation was probably, um, you know, more kind of an, an act of historic preservation or an oral history. Um, just, you know, this is just something we should do, um, you know, to preserve, you know uh, some of his stories, but yeah, it turned into something a lot larger, and there, there's a lot going on as far as the, the um, you know both the subject matter and the thematic material. How did the documentary start to take shape for you once you started talking to your dad, and you're looking at 
a lot of these photos. Uh, you're looking at some of the film footage. How did it start? How did the the theme, the construct, start to take shape for you when you realized this was much bigger than than what you thought it would be? Well, these aren't um, particularly, you know, these aren't famous people or celebrities or, like you said earlier, they're not in an Oliver Stone movie. Um, so, you, as a as a, a curious person, I suppose I knew that this would be interesting, um, regardless of what I found. Um, it, it just turned out that it would be way, that it was way, way more interesting than what I expected. Um, any number of, of, of uh, things about these people, um, whether it was their personality traits, the things they had in common with my father, the things that they um, that, 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 that separated them from my father, as far as whether it was ideology or upbringing or whatever it was. Um, you know the things that they went through before, during, and, and and what their family experienced after their deaths. Um, you know, but but this all kind of um, came from a visit to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington D.C. I mean, I knew that somewhere in my attic, you know, our attic, as I was growing up, that rattling around up there somewhere were these these two pencil rubbings of of the names uh, Glenn D. Rickert and Loring M. Bailey Jr. Um, and so I always just kind of wondered, well, you know, what was his relationship with these people or what was it like to lose friends um, or buddies, you know, in a in a situation like that where you can't confide in anybody, where you're not, you don't have any emotional support, you're not, you know, you're not, you're not able to sort of grieve for them in a way that you might if you were stateside. So, um, you know, it was, again, sort of a, a endlessly fascinating subject. How did you get your dad to open up? Was he reluctant at all? Before you even started delving into Loring Bailey's family or Glenn Rickards, was your dad reluctant to talk about his own experiences? No. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, we, we, I had a conversation with my sister a few years ago about this, who, who also appears in the, in the film Beth. Um, I had a conversation with her about the fact that um, she had asked him a story about something and he, he, he told her about it and uh, you know, at that point, I probably scratched my head and thought, "Oh, why didn't we talk about this?" You know, I, it wasn't. It wasn't. I certainly wasn't jealousy, but I. I it was kind of. I, I, it occurred to me that this this wasn't a person that was closed or emotionally unavailable to me. Um, all I had to do was ask, and he said, "Yeah, happy to help." I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. And even the idea of shooting it because he was um, familiar and, and and friendly with um, my director of photography, Dan Akiba. We've been friends since '98 um, or so. Um, so this is a, a you know a long enough relationship that my my dad was familiar with this person and knew that we both would treat it with respect and that it wasn't trying to be we weren't trying to be exploitative or anything like that. Well, something tells me just listening to your dad and seeing him on camera that he wouldn't raise a son that would be exploitative with material like this. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure that's 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 sort of a more of a compliment for him. I, I'll, I'll let him know you said that. <laughs> and and, um, of, and of course, if your dad is anything like my father was, had you tried to be exploitative, you know, you're never too old to get your bottom whacked. <laughs> so, no, I, I, yeah, I don't. I, none of that stuff happened in my in my family in my household. <laughs> so uh, I, I I wasn't concerned about that. He, he also, I mean, he and I interacted about um, we've we've interacted about politics and civics and. Um, you know, history for a long time, and he's he's tremendously well read, and and you know, a uh, joy to talk to about those subjects. So it wasn't again. This didn't try. This didn't um, take any arm twisting um, on his part. And I should mention, on the part of most of the people that took place, uh, took part in this documentary as interview subjects, they were incredibly generous with their time and welcoming in their in their homes. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because once your dad started talking, and once your dad went started looking, trying, you know. Wanting to find out what happened, you know, with Lor- uh, Loring Bailey Jr., you know, where was his gravesite, and then the, the discovery of family right there within a few miles, and the memorial gravesite right there within a few miles. How d- how did you go about broaching Mr. Bailey, Mr. and Mrs. Bailey Sr. about coming and talking to them? Well, um, it, it certainly helped that my parents were in Russia at the time. Um, you know, uh, they were both of both my mother and my father are pretty protective over their um, friends, Lori and Dorothy, who, who have now uh, passed away. Um, but you know, I think that when I mentioned it to my to my parents about asking them if they would sit for an interview, um, you know, again, it was they didn't, they knew that I would be respectful and that I would treat it, um, you know, with the respect that it deserved. Um, 
but you know it was always it was always explicit that Loring um, Bailey Senior would do the talking and that and that Dorothy would either be in the room or in the next room. But, but this wasn't something that she was willing to or, or um, particularly enthusiastic about talking about, um, and certainly not on camera. Um, it was a devastating experience that you can't really. It's not something that it's not my place to even talk about. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. and and for for somebody like Loring Bailey um, Senior, who again I, I knew pretty you know pretty well by that point. I had visited him a few times, and my parents had been friends with him for um, you know certainly six or seven years by then. Um, he, he didn't have to do this. He didn't have to talk to me. Right. I, I it's a, you know an extraordinary honor to to talk to people about. Um, you know, losing their only child um, during this kind of this period in our country's history. Um, so I, I, I again, they treated it with respect, and 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 they knew that um, this wasn't going to be something that they regretted doing. Mm-hmm. How long uh, was the process, uh, the interview process, of going out and meeting, you know, with the Baileys, with you know some of the other people that you spoke with? Well, so that that process took um, about five years. I mean, you know, from 2006 until through 2011. Um, I think the last shoot that we had was in 2011, which we went down to DC to actually shoot at the at the memorial and in Arlington Cemetery as well. Um, and but the the thing is, it's not like five years of, of you know intense working, you know, where your nose is to the grindstone and you're kind of you know pouring over research for five years and you lose ninety pounds or something. You know, it was mostly like a lot of fits and starts and hiatuses and um, you know not really knowing what I had, not really knowing how to put it together. Um, and I didn't get to a rough cut until um, probably 2011 or 2012, um, and that that was when I uh, was earning a master's and uh, degree in art with a concentration in media studies uh, from Rhode Island College here in Providence. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it took a long time, and, and now now it being 2006, um, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, it would have been unfathomable for me to think about it getting a, a North American release. Um, you know, tomorrow is to, to coincide with Memorial Day weekend. It's it's just uh, it's a tremendous honor. You know, were you editing as you were going at all, or were you just, you know, amassing, you know, your footage and your archival materials and then approaching this at the end to come up with your with your theme, with your through line? I, I was, but it was it was just, I mean, it was so, it was so amateurish and sort of, um, you know, it, it wasn't something that really bore any fruit. I mean, it took a long time for me to... Uh, cause I didn't go to film school, um, you know. So, I, like you said, I studied music and, and my undergrad, and I, I did some music for television and and some, uh, in, you know, some smaller film projects before this. But um, I didn't know how to put it together. I didn't know what a three act structure was. I mean, I, you know, this was this is you know to say that this is my first film, it is. But I it was like on the job training. I mean, it took me. I, you know, I, I, I sort of put myself through the paces as far as um, you know putting something together that an audience could. Uh, could could understand or could enjoy um, and could learn something from, hopefully, um, but certainly be entertained and, and, you know, that it was an interesting story. Well, I mean, I think it's it's very interesting. As I said, you know, uh, earlier, I mean, I know, have known so many men over the years, so many guys that went to Nam that came back. I know some that, that went and didn't come back from the time I was, you know, in elementary school and then others that I met years later. And it's... It, we haven't seen stories like this about this generation of of soldier and it's it's so heartwarming to see the care that you have put into this documentary because you may have learned tri- by trial by fire to make a documentary but the care and the sensitivity that you have put into it that would outweigh any mistake you technical mistake you ever would have made <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that a lot because, um, as as any uh, filmmaker probably does, I mean, I'm sort of I look at it and I only see mistakes or missed opportunities now. So, um, you know, I, but I, I can't. I'd be remiss without mentioning the fact that this film, though, yes, it's, it's not um, it's not common uh, this this sort of tone when approaching this war. Um, and I even had a a, a, a festival um, look at the film and and. 
their comment was something that that the music wasn't this you know kind of rock and roll wah wah guitar and it wasn't you know that I hadn't captured the essence of the '60s or something because it wasn't like everything else and uh, you know that this is a festival that will remain nameless but uh, you know there are other films that have done it um, you know uh, Be Good Smile Pretty by Tracy Droz Tragos um, Regret to Inform by Barbara Sonnenborn um, you know there are films that use that apply this tone where you're looking at a very big um, subject through a very little lens, um, and and that's what I tried to do. I mean, and it is part of a tradition, and there are films like it, um, but I think a lot of them don't see the light of day, even if even if there are more that exist that I haven't been found. But I I looked for them because I wanted to be influenced by them. Those are you know I, to be to be part of this conversation again is just a is a huge honor, and to be able to be mentioned in the same conversation with um, you know with films about Vietnam is a is a huge honor. So, what did you learn about yourself? in the journey of making my father's Vietnam? Uh, that I need anger management counseling, uh, <laughs> a professional organization, uh, consultant. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think I learned anything about myself. I mean, I aged for, you know, so, so much that, <laughs> that it's, I'm a different person than I was when I started it. So I, it's, it's hard to think from this, um, experience, you know, what I learned about myself. I mean, I, I know that this is something I want to continue doing. So, um, you know, I'm currently working on a second film and I've already, it's already shot and it's about a, um, a musician named Omar Sosa, a Cuban, um, composer and pianist. Uh, you know, so I, I just have a real, I have a real interest in kind of putting stories together, um, out of, uh, out of material that already is out there in some ways. So mm-hmm. just sort of organizing archival material and things like that. Um, I certainly learned about myself that I, I, I like doing that and that it's, that it's sort of, it feels euphoric for me to do that. Um, but I, you know, I, it's, 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 Again, one of those things where it's almost strange to be having these conversations with members of the press and having these interesting conversations with people who responded to the film. Um, you know, it feels great, and it's it's you know I'm just thrilled that the film's going to find an audience. That's 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 pretty much it. Well, and everybody can start looking for it uh, tomorrow. I believe tomorrow, correct? Yeah, it's already available for pre-order on iTunes, um, and uh, and it's. Um, It'll be available tomorrow across select um, cable providers and other platforms. I think Amazon, Google Play, Vudu, uh, Vimeo, um, you know, and, and a bunch of different cable providers. Well, Soren, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This has been an absolute, an absolute privilege and a pleasure. And I hope you will come back on the show again as you get further in the process with your next film. I would love to. It's, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, Soren, thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. And that was Soren Peter Sorensen, My Father's Vietnam. And now, now we have the wonderful Ido Har. Are you there, Ido? I am. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. This is a big documentary day here on, on Behind the Lens. We're just going from documentary to documentary. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you've got a very interesting documentary presenting Princess Shaw. Yes. I mean, this is, we're not contained in a city. We're not even contained in a country. You have spanned the globe with, the, with this documentary. Yes. It's a, a documentary shot in Israel and you all in Atlanta. Yes. How did, now, for those that don't know, how would you describe the story of presenting Princess Shaw? It's about Samantha Montgomery that calls herself Princess Shaw. During the day, she walks with elderly people in New Orleans. In the evening, she goes uh, back home and uh, uploads songs that she writes, uh, upload on YouTube. Um, not many views, but she doesn't know that in the other side of the world, in Israel, in a kibbutz, there is Kutiman, Israeli musician, doing music um, for her songs. Now, how did you find out about Princess Shaw? I understand that you you knew Kutiman, correct? Yeah, I know Kutiman for many years, and when he showed me the project included uh, Princess Shaw, I immediately fell in love with her songs. Uh, I, I watched her uh, YouTube channel and so was so moved by, by her songs and by her clips, and I really wanted to meet her, and I, I met her in, uh, in New Orleans. So now, how, how does somebody like Samantha react when she gets a phone call from an Israeli filmmaker and says, hey, I saw clips of you on YouTube. I want to I make a documentary about you. 
So I must say she was very, uh, she was willing to meet me, and we met in a small place uh, that I stayed in in New Orleans. She was uh, suspicious in the beginning. She came with a good friend. All this story of the guy coming from the other side of the world <laughs> and this YouTube thing. She was suspicious, but very fast we felt very comfortable with each other. And same evening, you know, we went to an open mic evening in New Orleans, and uh, things started. You know, the film started there. Now, how did you go about uh, constructing this documentary? Because there's a lot of footage where you follow her around through her day-to-day. You're also incorporating her YouTube uploads that she did, and which, for anybody out there, when you see the documentary, you're going to be blown away hearing (laughs) Princess Shaw, hearing Samantha sing, because she sings everything a cappella. Right. But it's just the whole, you know, because you're melding and you're melding Kudamon's YouTube uh, videos plus in-person recordings. You're blending different medium and different formats here. So how did that unfold as you started putting this documentary together? It was very challenging, I must say. Also, you know, the shootings, Israel... Um, New Orleans, Orleans. I couldn't be in New Orleans all the time. It was very challenging, and it's something that uh, I immediately understood that uh, Samantha's clips and uh, uploads, songs, her uh, Instagram channel, it's, it's a very important uh, line in this uh, film. It was a kind of struggle during the editing to combine all those uh, lines. How, uh, how long was your process here? I, I know it took you a few years it was a little more than a year of shooting and editing while I was going to New Orleans, back to Tel Aviv, filming Kutiman also, and editing during the, the trips to New Orleans. And in this film, I must say that it came to itself. You know, I edited the scenes after every trip, and suddenly until I found out that, okay, this is the film. This is, the, this is it. <laughs> How much footage do you think you had that you were going through? Wow, I think I had like with the um, a YouTube channel and the Instagram channel, I had like something around like uh, 200 hours uh, of footage that I had to, you know, squeeze and to make this documentary of 80, 83 minutes. Oh my God. Yes, but I, it was, I was really enjoying because of the songs and the, the music. I really enjoyed doing that. How surprised were you? Because you are no stranger to filmmaking. You have you have a a wonderful track record with artistic expression and and film. Were you surprised by how this was coming together? By what uh, Kudaman was doing in terms of he was shooting individual and he was finding you know musical pieces and then mashing everything together. It's not something that we see. Right. I think this was something that really caught me. I think there was something so innovative in his work. I assume kind of revolutionary, you know, doing what he, uh, what he does, like giving a stage and, uh, and uh, you know, to singers and people that, uh, like Samantha, you know, he find those amazing talents and create this music. This is something that gave me a lot of inspiration. So what is it that inspires you as a filmmaker when you're looking for new ideas? You know, do you sit down and and think about something or is it something in the world that just strikes you? It's something that, you know, I, I, it, it's, in each film that I did, it was so uh, different. You know, I, in, in this film, it's totally seeing um, uh, the mashups and the Kutiman's work and thinking about all those amazing talent that there, there is a good chance that we are missing, you know, and we will never hear about them. And they are amazing, unique voices, you know, unique people. Now, does this make you want to go out and look for more of these people yourself? Yes, totally. You know, during the process of filmmaking and the research, you know, I saw such amazing talents, uh, you know, in, on YouTube. People that, with no many views, but, you know, people with something to say to the world. And this is something that I think it, it, this story could not happen like 20 years ago. It's something that's very relevant, and I hope it, start, it will start a kind of a change. Mm-hmm. How exciting is it for you as a filmmaker in this day and age? Because as you just said, a film like this could, would not have been possible 20 years ago. We didn't have, you know, social media had not exploded, and that's opening up whole new worlds for storytelling. 
is that something that you that you embrace or do you do you still like the traditional way of telling stories through cinema? You know, I like the traditional way, but it's, I'm very excited. You know, I think this internet and social media open a, a window. You know, the fact that two people from different places around the world can create and collaborate and do something new. It's something that for me gives me a lot of optimism. Also, in the in the ability of people that not necessarily have the right connection or, you know, uh, the power to break into the world of uh, uh, music or films or art, it can be very cruel. And I think the Internet can give a, a stage and a platform that still people can find each other and do something and even give a little fight to those cruel rules that usually dominate those worlds of art and music. So how cruel was the world to you when you tried to get your first film made? It was, you know, I started in Israel. It was very, very hard, you know, to get, you know, especially when you start and, and you are very unconfident and it's, you, you need to prove yourself and you need to find someone that will believe you and, we, and we, you know, like Kudiman, see Samantha and believe her and listen to her. And I think this is, the film is about that, about all those, you know, people that are doing art and music and, you know, this, this need, and, you know, especially in the beginning of their way, that someone will see you, you see your talent, will, will think that you have something interesting to say and, and believe in you. This is uh, something that I felt it uh, totally when I started, you know, and, and it, it was very hard in the beginning. So what is, it, what is it about filmmaking? What is the greatest gift that it gives to you? You know, I, for me, those films took me places that I, I would never think I will get. And I'm not only talking about physical places, but also emotional uh, places. And in, like in this film, like in presenting Princess Show, there is something, uh, the way I work, I'm not doing interviews, you know, I'm not, there is no narration. I'm, I'm being there and trying to document those moments. And what was exciting for me the, the most is how, like, the reality can write a script that I could never imagine. Is that more difficult for you when you are making a film to not have, to not be writing anything, to not have narration and just rely on life unfolding? Yes, you know, there are moments that I get very depressed because things are not really happen the way I hoped. But it, it can be very frustrating. But, but for me, I feel it's the right way, you know, to take this chance. I, if I have a strong feeling and I know that there is something that I, I want to film and, or I want to say, I will go with this intuition. This is, a, this is something that it's right, it feels right for me. So now that you, now that you get to sit back and look at you know, princess uh, presenting Princess Shaw and it's hitting theaters and people are going to get to see it. What would you have to say is the most challenging thing about this particular film that you overcame in in getting the film made? I think it's it's a lot about things that we talk about the the challenging of where first the distance, you know, to do this film that is like Israel, US and uh, you know, I, I I couldn't be in you in um, in in New Orleans uh, as much as I wanted. And also to combine all the lines of the YouTube and the music and the real uh, shooting that I had, this is was really challenging. Well, so what is next for you now, Ido? What, well, what do you have? First, I'm totally in this experience with the film release here in the U.S. and the film also released in Israel and it's like in the commercial theater and I, I'm really into it. And I do started to research new projects, but it's too early for me uh, to talk about them. I can say that they are very much, again, connected to this uh, uh, social media and music. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. Ido. Thank you so much for joining me today on Behind the Lens. Thank you so much. Oh, I look forward to talking to you again when you get your next film done. Same here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ito. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was filmmaker Ito Har talking about presenting Princess Shaw. And we're going to take a short break and then come right back to Behind the Lens. Located in the heart of Screenland, 
Culver City Observer is the number one newspaper in Culver City, covering local news, politics, and community events, with sports by Mitch Chortkoff and movie reviews by Debbie Lynn Elias, Culver City Observer is the place to go to be in the know. When you think Culver City and the heart of Screenland, think Culver City Observer. When you think movies and movie reviews, think Culver City Observer. Culver City Observer, a division of Arizona Newspaper Group, is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, film critic, com. You can find me here every Monday from 11 to 12 or 2 to 3, depending on which coast you're on and whatever you are in between. My brain can't process that much. Um, so... You've heard today from some very fabulous documentarians, Soren Peter Sorensen, Ido Har, and some clips from Luke Walker in his upcoming film, Australia's Lost Gold. And we have a few more minutes. So, Steve, are we going to do, we're going to do the clip, Luke's third clip, yes? Okay, so let's hear a little bit more of what Luke Walker had to say about Australia's Lost Gold. It, 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 it felt like I was a bit of a nerdy Indiana Jones in a way, you know, and, and that's, that's quite uh, that's quite exciting when you you know when you're of that that sort of curious mindset. And we we were unraveling an 80 year old mystery, you know, and there are things that were being discovered for the first time. And, and so when you're in in the moment of discovering. You know, a clue that's 80 years old, and you're the one that's found it, and it's a piece of the puzzle that you've been looking for. It's quite obsessive, and it's quite exciting, and it, it genuinely, you know, that, that enthusiasm and that intrigue, it's, it's genuine, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's some, it's, it's, they are riddles that I've been trying to solve for a long time, so I'm glad that that, uh, that, that comes across to you when, when you're watching it. Um, so... Anybody that want in the L.A. area, you want to meet Luke, meet Luke Walker, you want to see Australia's Lost Gold, Friday and Saturday night, Arena Cinema in Hollywood, be there, evening show, Luke and I will be doing a Q&A after the film. And right now, for the last couple of minutes here, uh, I want to bring up some of my exclusive interview with Mike Epps. As you recall, Mike uh, just starred in Dion Taylor's latest film, Meet the Blacks. But Mike also has the new ser- TV series, Uncle Buck. Yes, based on the John Candy movie that uh, we all know and love from decades gone by. So I had a chance to sit down with Mike for an exclusive interview and talk to him about working with ensembles, being on set, and his role beyond yuck, yuck, laugh it up, and carry the comedic ball. And here's what he had to say. When you now are stepping in front of the camera, Mm -hmm. and it is a real filmmaking experience where it's not just set, you know, block, set, shoot, but you've got a lot of physicality going on here, plus you've got to not only nail your delivery, but react, comedically react. Mm-hmm. And for a, narrow hallways, smaller rooms, how does that influence your performance as you enter, approach a scene? Uh, well, you know, I just adjust. I'm, I'm an adjuster. I, I adjust to... <laughs> Whatever the situation is, I, I scale it down to what I can but do. But you don't it. adjust your paycheck, though. Please no, tell me you don't. No, I don't adjust okay. that. Yeah, okay. I adjust it for more. <laughs> adjust up. Yeah, I adjust up. But, um, you know, I just upgrade to whatever whatever's going on, you know. And if it's a downgrade, it's a downgrade. But it's all performance, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, no matter how I give it. It's all performance. Do you like these ensemble movies? I do. I do. I like these ensemble movies because they give they give you an opportunity to work with a group of people. Mm-hmm. And when you work with a group of people, um, it's less work mm-hmm. and it's fun. You know, mm-hmm. when it's when it's scaled down, and you're depending on two to three people, uh, it's good. But mm-hmm. it's nothing like working with ten, eleven, thirteen people that are good. You know, and you get to see, and the movie's colorful, and you get to see all 
genres of talent come together. Everybody's different, bringing something different to the table. And we can all see what Mike brings to the table with Uncle Buck when it premieres sometime this summer in the fall. But for now, that's all the time we have today. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias. We'll be back here on Behind the Lens next week. Until then. (laughs) 